0: Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info.
1: Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nigat, and as always, I'm glad that you've joined us for our show today. Um, The uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, which has surged dramatically here in Georgia, continues to dominate headlines in the state. The uh, Department of Public Health, the State Department of Public Health, reports that positivity uh, rates for uh, COVID-19 are up to almost 19 percent. And that is almost double The uh, 10%, which public health officials think is the point at which you recognize that you have a serious surge in uh, uh, the virus in a given location. Uh, Grady Hospital's chief medical officer, Dr. Robert Janssen, said the only thing he could compare what he's seeing at their hospital and other hospitals around the state is to a tsunami. Uh, There are uh, shortages of beds in some hospitals in Georgia, and um, uh, health officials at various facilities say their uh, their healthcare staffs are pushed to the brink of exhaustion to see what's happening. We're going to talk about that today in the context of the politics of the virus, which we can never separate uh, these days. Politics and COVID-19 go hand in hand, and we're going to discuss that with our panel. Uh, Greg Bluestein. Uh, A.J.C. political reporter just wrote about this and posted it in yesterday's uh, A.J.C. Greg, we're glad to have you with us today. How are you doing?
2: Good morning. We're doing we're doing well. Schools back. And you're right. So is the Delta variant. And uh, it's, it's certainly having an impact on our community.
1: Um, and we will uh, talk about the story you filed on how the, uh, both sides of the political aisle are dealing with that uh, right now. Rene Alegria is back with us. He's president and CEO of Mundo Hispanico uh, Digital. Um, Rene, we're glad to have you. The last time you were here, uh, your visit was cut short because a fire alarm went off in your building and you had to uh, scramble to get out of there. <laughs> yeah. But first of all, thank you for having me. But, yeah,
3: I, I, this, is, this is basically my makeup class. Because I had to jet the, the last last week. Luckily enough, it was not a fire, but still was not let into my apartment for a few hours. Um, okay. We're all safe here. We're all safe. Thank
1: you. Thank goodness for that. Uh, professor Audrey Haynes is with us. She, of course, is a professor of political science at the University of Georgia, and also the director of the Applied Politics program at the university, which trains students in how they can become professionals in politics. Uh, Audrey, how are you doing today? You're getting set to start classes in about a week, right?
0: Yes, we just finished summer semester, turned in our grades on Monday, and then the process to flip it around and get ready for fall is already here. And the students are coming this weekend. Uh, Dorms open this weekend, so we'll have an influx of students coming in.
1: Uh, It's going to be interesting. We know that the university system of Georgia, uh, which has uh, oversight over all the state universities, including, of course, UGA, uh, has not uh, set any guidelines for mandates for wearing masks on campus or having students or faculty be vaccinated. So you're dealing in kind of an unknown territory as you get things started again.
0: Yes, there's a lot of uncertainty as we move into fall. Those of us who taught summer classes, uh, one of the things we're fully aware is that COVID is still here because there were still students who were affected by it. And I would say during orientation, one of the positives, uh, because we have been very proactive about getting students vaccinated, is if you came to orientation at UGA, there was a transport that would take you straight to the health center if you wanted to get a shot.
1: That's uh, interesting news. Um, We're also joined by Professor Kurt Young, who is a professor of political science and the department chair at Clark Atlanta University. Your classes start again on the same day that UGA does, uh, Kurt. And what's the protocol for uh, students and staff at uh, Clark Atlanta?
4: Good morning, Bill. Um, As of today, (laughs) the the protocol is uh, full vaccinations are required and masking is required. Uh, of course, the university is going to put in place the uh, 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 now typical uh, social distancing protocols and what have you. But you know, Bill, this thing can change because it's an evolving issue. The numbers are telling us something, and um, one of the things that we are comfortable with is that we know we have a president, um, George French, who's paying very close attention to uh, these signals, and he will he will adjust accordingly. But uh, still, still, there are, there are uncertainties.
1: You know, uh, Greg Bluestein. that's a good way to start our conversation, really. You you look at the difference between what's happening at a private institution, Emory University, for example, Clark Atlanta uh, being another example, where they are putting mandates of various kinds in place in the University System of Georgia, a public institution where they're not. And it it feeds into your story, Greg, uh, if you don't mind my reading the lead to you, You said this, the recent surge in coronavirus cases in Georgia has triggered a new round of finger pointing from politicians once eager to put the pandemic behind them, shaping a fresh debate over the ongoing outbreak, just as competitive races for statewide contests are beginning to gel. And Greg, you point out in this article that uh, Republicans are blaming President Biden for sending, quote, mixed messages, unquote about requirements for mitigating the virus and democrats of course are blaming republicans for refusing to put mandates of any sort in place right
2: yeah you got it it is a it is a blame game uh, and i've been on the campaign trail a lot at republican events in particular over the last few weeks and you know not so long ago republicans wanted to talk about anything but the coronavirus right they they, they want to talk about the economy about um, President Trump's agenda. Whatever it was, it was not the coronavirus. And now it is maybe the first thing that comes out of uh, politicians' mouths. Uh, at, at a rally I went to on, in Rome over the weekend um, uh, railing against vaccine mandates and mask requirements and all that was front and center um, and and also was the argument that, that there were mixed messages. Basically, the, the President Biden's administration spiked the football too soon on the coronavirus pandemic. And of course, Democrats counter by saying, uh, look, that's science. You know, our understanding of the, of the coronavirus, of COVID-19 changes, and our understanding of how to prevent it changes. And just because uh, you know, masks, mask rules were loosened a few months ago doesn't mean that um, you know, it's mixed messages, because now they're being re-implemented. That just means our understanding of the Delta variant is changing.
1: Um, you have uh, – this is uh, uh, certainly playing out in um, legislative uh, races and, and constitutional office races. Uh, you point out, Greg, that uh, Senator Burt jones who just launched his campaign for uh, lieutenant governor, he now is calling for a special legislative session to ban schools from requiring masks – for students and staffers across the state. He said, you quote him as saying, if it were up to the doomsday Democrats, we'd be locked down forever. We need to start getting back to some normalcy. That means fully reopening our economy, getting our kids learning again. Uh, Greg?
2: Yeah, and this is this is not just coming from Burt Jones. This is coming from other Republican yeah. lawmakers who are calling for uh, bans on school mask mandates, bans on vaccine requirements, all this. And I saw it front and center over the weekend when, as the governor was leaving, he got booed and, and cheered at the speech. And after, as he was leaving, he was being hounded by by uh, you know, a Republican activist asking, why can't you ban private businesses from requiring ma- vaccine mandates? And he said, I'm not going to tell private sector what to do. But it certainly puts him in a tough spot kind of in between all this um, because he's not taking – He's, of course, uh, infuriating Democrats by not reviving any sort of mask requirements or taking really any real initiative to, uh, uh, you know, he said he's basically holding pat. He's staying the course. He's doing what he's always done. He's not doing anything new in terms of trying to stop the pandemic. But Republicans are saying he should do um, he should take even more aggressive action against vaccine requirements and mask mandates.
0: Yes. And I will add that if you were to look at the governor's, I believe it's his Twitter page, he has a pinned tweet and the pinned tweet says that Georgia will not lock down or impose statewide mask mandates. I think he's trying to thread the needle of, you you know, trying to be visibly looking like he is, you know right there with the republicans and and holding fast but at the same time you know this is someone who from my understanding really is concerned about the impact that covid is having and is more likely to allow for example the city of athens to to have their mask mandate and to allow schools to do what they need to do and and I would argue and we've said this a million times it's actually very disheartening that the politicians out there are utilizing this for you know, traction and gain in an election when very often it is their own supporters who are the ones who are going unvaccinated. And in a sense, they are doing harm to the people that they say they are concerned about.
4: Yeah, that, that's a sure. great point. That's a great point. Uh, I, I would I would read the signals slightly differently. I think uh, from, and I I agree with, with uh, most of what uh, Greg said, I'll just uh, read it just slightly differently, which is that I think what we're seeing in the in the uh uh the blame game if we can call it that is re- actually Republicans identifying or defining a particular kind of message to respond to a some of uh, particularly the latter half of the summer where they were really brutalized uh, uh as the effort to attach the surge in uh um on covid numbers to the Republican uh leadership's lack of of a policy or even lack of of of, of, of what seems to be as Audrey saying uh concern for the spreading of the of the virus among its constituency um and so it, 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 it it's certainly a blame game but c- clearly I, what i think I see is that there's a messaging uh, uh strategy emerging now um uh, that's going to begin to uh target and i i think we can agree that maybe um the Biden administration gave uh um them uh, uh, uh an issue on a silver platter where there seemed to be some confusion i agree with the notion that um uh, the virus is changing, right? It's evolving, and so the messaging has to shift uh, with uh, those those changes. Um, the last point that I will make on this uh, this bill is: I wonder, in any discussion about um, um, banning mandates, what will be the responses of the parents and other educational advocacy and constituency groups uh, in the state? In the state, if we get signals from the state of Florida, for example, where Governor DeSantis down there is probably a, a bit more aggressive. Uh, than other uh, governors throughout the country, um, the parents and teachers and um, administrators throughout the, throughout the uh, um, school districts in the state have been responding with uh, lawsuits of their own uh, to push back, and then that's mag- magnifying the issue in a way that I don't think the Republican leadership is looking for.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned Ron DeSantis down there. He's now saying that school, he's going to withhold pay from uh, school officials who uh, defy his uh, ban on mask mandates in schools. Greg Abbott has taken similarly aggressive anti-masking positions. And I I think we have to say, uh, as Greg pointed out, you know, Governor Kemp is at least threading the needle to some extent. In saying to that woman who said, you need to tell private businesses they can't uh, uh, mandate vaccines for their uh, workers, which is something that Senator Brandon Beach is talking about introducing in the legislature next session. But, Renee, I want to ask you a different question, if I might. Um, During the Trump administration, uh, Donald Trump was uh, frequently... Um, criticized for sidelining public health officials and insisting that he be the messenger on coronavirus, on COVID-19. There are people here in Georgia who are now asking, where are the public health officials in the state of Georgia? Where is Kathleen Toomey, the state public health director? I, maybe I'm missing something, but to the best of my knowledge, we have not heard her using her bully pulpit to uh, talk about how important uh, vaccine mandates are. She did make a tour of the state at one point uh, recommending people get vaccinated. But she seems to have been sidelined to some extent, too, unless I'm missing something.
3: Well, look, I I will address that. But I think going back to the article, Greg's article, about the, the blame game and political jockeying that's happening right now, you know, I, I can speak for my Hispanic community in that we're, we're listening and watching what's going on, and and our community is dying, and we just can't even grasp the the, the frivolousness of this blame game because it COVID has disseminated the Hispanic community to such an extent, and I, I think that with the misinformation that has leaked or I shouldn't even say leak. that is promoted by many of the, in the GOP and the, the moving target that COVID is as it becomes something different. No, We've never lived through anything like this, right? So trying to tag something, something, and the next day it be something completely different is, is difficult, right? Um, I, I do think that we saw a lot of folks, um, you know, go out and, and publicly speak on the issue. In the early days of, of 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 the pandemic, now that we know a little bit better, and frankly, the messaging is unifying itself with the Democrats and Republicans, and you know, we see folks that are their their dying breath is such that I wish I got the vaccine, you know. So I don't know if if we we even need to see these local uh, health officials. It's out there. Those those the message is out there. So. You know, I mean, it's, it's one of these things where it's just such a tragedy that people uh, in the political infrastructure are doing this while their constituents, if you will, are dying. I mean, you see in Florida, and Texas, the, the surge just just ravaging the, the community. I heard an interview yesterday about how uh, there's two ventilators in a 19-county area, right? And those two ventilators are, you know, there's going to be a fight for them. You know, I mean, that's not the kind of health care system that uh, that we as Americans deserve. So there's there's so many facets to this. Right. It's not it's not it's not easy uh, and it's not a simple, simple fix. But, you know, listening to to just this discussion, even, you know, I mean, Sometimes it's like, wait, we just got to step back. What is the right thing to do for our children? You know, and that's where it's now hitting our children.
0: And and
3: Uh,
0: can I follow follow up on what Renee said by saying that, you know, in terms of messaging and the potential um, use of the strategy, I would say there is a lot of risk that they're taking because, you know, one, we're finding out that children can be affected by this. We're about to open up schools. And if you are, actively fighting against precaution. That's different than sitting there wringing your hands, complaining about what's being done. It's it's out there putting up barriers to that taking place, especially if you're going to involve the courts and introduce new legislation. What happens if, you know, it gets worse and people really get sick? Like Renee said, there are a number of um, conservative talk show hosts that, you know, are out there having gotten COVID having died from COVID, are telling people, oh, I wish I had had the vaccine. You know, I'm so sorry for what I said. You know, I don't know what I was thinking. So I think politicians need to be really careful because, I mean, if for no other reason than their own selfish preferences and interests, they need to be careful what they say because there could be real consequences.
1: Um, Greg, to uh, put uh, finishing touches on this portion of our conversation, the poll that uh, PPP, Public Policy Pulsing, which is polling, which is a left-leaning polling organization, uh, had some numbers which really tell us why uh, this is such a strongly partisan issue. Biden's approval rating, according to PPP, among those who are fully vaccinated is 62% approval, 33% disapproval. But just 3% have a positive view of Biden, 94% have a negative view among those who don't have the shot. So if you got the shots, 62% think Biden's doing a good job. If you didn't get the shot, 94% say he's doing a bad job, Greg. Well, I
2: mean, what a contrast, right? It shows you right there, too, um, what political parties like more likely to get the shots, um, you know, by, by, by gauging the president's performance. Um, but look, this is why this is such a political argument, and, and it's unfortunate. It shouldn't be, right? I don't want to write a story about finger-pointing and blame games when it comes to uh, the resurgence of the pandemic. But again, I saw it firsthand uh, at, at so many uh, political events, including at Sunday at uh, Saturday in Rome, where Marjorie Taylor Greene goes up and says, uh, one of the first things she says is, hey, you know, if you want, get the vaccine. And then she goes on and starts talking about railing against these mask mandates. And that was the that was the narrative that I heard throughout that entire two two or three hour event was politician after politician had largely the same view, which is, uh, you know, they weren't they weren't criticizing the vaccine in itself, but they were saying they were criticizing any sort of government interference in terms of
1: uh, imposing vaccines well we just had the magic words marjorie taylor green mentioned for the first time on today's show i know some of you out there don't want us to talk about her at all but she represents a certain segment of the voting population and i think talking about what she has to say is something we have to do like it or not and uh kurt she has just been banned from Twitter, uh, in keeping with what Bluestein just said, for seven days. And it's her final warning. Twitter's policy is four strikes and you're out permanently. She is now on her third strike. And the reason for the ban is that she is spreading, once again, misinformation about the shots. She says, Kurt, they don't work.
4: Right. And and I agree with the point that was made a moment ago, I think, by Renee. This is, we, are, we are talking about life and death situations here, Right. And so it's more than uh, the continuation. For example, which I believe a lot of what we're seeing here, and and I just have to make this connection, uh, what we're seeing here with everything from um, um, Taylor Green to the broader discussion that we're having about um, the spiking in, in the race. I think this is an outgrowth of the recent, um, the, the most recent uh, administration. Um, this is uh... some would have even predicted that we would be here. Um, um, given the dynamics and the direction of the Trump administration during the uh, onset of the uh, corona, uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic, right, um, and and Bill, by extension, the way that Taylor uh, um, um, seems to be playing loose with the facts and with the truth is, to, to my mind, not much different from what we saw and heard from the administration, the previous administration's uh, treatment of the uh, truth and the facts around the, the, the deadly nature of this of this virus. So, um, I, I too am hungry for uh, uh, our effort to place these kind of issues in a broader and, and, and very, very severe context that they're in. Right?
1: Yeah. All I, right, I, Renee, I, you got the last word on this topic.
3: Sure. Listen, um, MTG has built her entire political uh, campaign on misinformation. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that she will get banned by Twitter eventually because of the messages that she has spouted, you know, on, camp, on her campaign trail, on her website, et cetera. So, you know, I mean, in this, in, in this world of misinformation through social media, there is a litmus test, and she's failing it. And she's failing the people of Georgia as a result.
1: All right, let's get to our first break in today's show. We have a lot more to talk about when we come back with our panel. We'll do that in just a moment. Kurt Young, Audrey Haynes, uh, Renee Alegria, Greg Bluestein joined me for today's show. Uh, Greg, uh, yesterday the Georgia Chamber of Commerce held its annual congressional luncheon down in Macon. Uh, it is a major event every year because some of the biggest business leaders in the state attend, as do any number of important elected officials. Uh, and yesterday it was the governor who was in the spotlight, Greg, and he used it as an opportunity, you've reported. To talk about his campaign to fight uh, violent crime in uh, metro Atlanta, right?
2: Yeah, he, he, he turned the kind of tables on the business community at this big event in Columbus, <clears throat> saying essentially, look, the state has now stepped up. The state has passed new uh, crackdowns on violent crime, on gang activity, on street racing, it's put, putting more money into state anti-crime task forces. Um, but where's the business community? was this sort of challenge. Uh, and, and, and part of this is his ongoing frustration at not all businesses, but certain businesses that spoke up against the, the new restrictive uh, voting laws um, you know, that aren't speaking up against or, or, or aren't trying to find solutions for Metro Atlanta's rising crime rates. Um, and so he, he said, hey, where, where, are, where are businesses in this? Where's the, where are the chambers of commerce? Where are local executives? Why aren't they speaking out? Because this is a workforce issue. Um, And this is something, of course, in a way, in a sense it's bipartisan because Democrats too, if you look at, you need need to look no further than the Atlanta mayor's race to see Democrats also talking about the crime rates and what a problem they are in Atlanta. But they are also saying, look, this is more than a crackdown. This needs a more holistic approach. It's not just spending more money on police that's gonna solve this. It's looking at um, the pandemic as it affects the global health crisis and looking at
1: gun violence in particular. Uh, thanks for the correction, Columbus, not uh, Macon. Um, Renee, uh, uh, the governor is—he um, he is talking about introducing legislation, uh, presumably to expand the state law enforcement presence in the city of Atlanta and perhaps other metro uh, areas of the state. And doing that, among other things, during the special session uh, that will be called for redistricting. He's gotten some pushback, particularly from uh, Speaker David Ralston, who says, hey, we're going to get started so late on redistricting that we are not going to have time to take up other potentially contentious issues. But this is going to be a major theme in Brian Kemp's reelection campaign.
3: Yeah, I I think it's smart politics. I mean, it's, it's meat and potato politics. People right now are scared and nervous about what's happening with the violent crime rate spiking. I just here in in Atlanta Metro, the uh, murder of Katie Janes and her dog in Piedmont Park really struck a nerve uh, in in Midtown. You know, safe Piedmont Park. There was a ghastly murder. You know, and so people are. This is this is not. This is one of those issues that everyone can rally around. And it's 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 smart for him to do, whether whether he him flipping the tables, I find uh, very interesting. You know, I mean, obviously, there there are a lot of folks who are just going to look at whatever he says about about crime um, and and look at it with a uh, suspect glare. But the 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 fact of the matter is uh, the Democrats need to have a policy to, to, you know, combating the rise of violence throughout. Atlanta.
0: Well, and I would uh, argue, too, that, you know, part of it is campaign um, oriented, but part of it is probably in um, response to a real problem, because, you know, Jeff Duncan had a quote the other day that I thought was smart, where he talked about, um, it's not just the city of Atlanta, you know, all of Georgia. And all of the country is talking about it because we have had a historic rise. It began rising in 2019, um, and the pandemic um, is really a part of that cause. So I would argue that, you know, listening to the speaker and trying to bring in businesses, if they really want to have an impact on violent crime, because property crime has stayed basically at the same rate, it's violent crime that has increased, they have to focus on the pandemic, which goes – you know, you have questions about what they're doing in the pandemic versus this. And, you know, you can talk about, you know, getting more state troopers involved and, and um, you know, increasing the spending on policing. But policing often doesn't prevent violent crime. It goes out and finds the perpetrator and punishes them. But there's a lot of things that are factors in violent crime, including, you know, living a fast life, not really having, feeling, um, secure or looking towards the future, and and insecurity with the pandemic and discrimination and economic opportunity are all rolled into it. So that holistic approach is important. And Ralston and Kemp at least have, unlike some other um, Republicans, talked about more of those dimensions um, and are in agreement with some of the things that Democrats are saying. Even though the focus, the messaging, is so much on, you know, policing.
1: Um, Kurt, Greg Bluestein really sort of pointed us in this direction, but this is an issue that Democratic legislators are going to have to take up. They're going to have to deal with pretty carefully. Yesterday, State Representative Terry Anulowitz was on the show, and we kind of previewed what the governor was planning to say at his uh, chamber uh, speech, and she was quick to say, we really do, we Democrats do care about fighting violence. We think it's important. Um, She would probably line up, I think, with those who say it's, it's a holistic approach we need to take. But, Kurt, Democrats can't afford to just begin criticizing Republicans for wanting to crack down on crime. They've got to have a strong message of their own about how to approach it.
4: Well, you know, we don't need to look too far in history for this uh, on both accounts. On the one hand, this linking of the crime rate as a c- campaign issue is not new to us. You know, it goes it's deep in the history of presidential politics um on um, well, um, both parties right we've seen uh, um the, the nixon administration's response in many ways to the upheavals of the 1960s and the 70s um uh, on resort to this this kind of knee jerk uh, um campaign issue um and that's not to say that the issue of crime isn't critical I, I'm, I'm i'm separating the, the the concrete realities on the ground from the campaign uh, uh um uh, campaigning around that issue um Reagan administration in the mid nineteen eighties, uh certainly the Clinton administration in terms of the omnibus crime bill, uh and on and on. So this isn't new, right? This 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 this, this interesting just, just of crime discourse on the heels of major social and political upheaval in a society. That's not new. What the Democratic Party, I think, they're not asking me, but what I think they, they should do is to make certain that they expand the conversation. Politics one on one. You have the discussion on your terms right, and if for the de- for the Democratic Party, if the concern is to link crime or the issue of crime to community issues right and as Audrey saying, these are a range a plethora of issues that occur at the community level that are uh, that are directly connected to crime, then that must be a part of the pushback or the response or you know to um i guess to stay consistent a part of the campaign a uh, A uh, 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 discussion that has to come out of the democratic camp right or camps um it has to take uh, try, attempt to seize the high ground in the conversation and to expand the conversation beyond simply um, uh um, um violent crime but to the types of factors that we know help to li- mitigate uh, crime in certain communities such as uh giving families the necessary support uh that they need to help raise young people in a certain kind of context social context
1: mm. Uh, Greg, help me with this, and I I suppose it's to some extent speculation, but the governor has said a couple times now we'd like to take this up in the special session. We know the special session has been delayed because the Census Bureau's data has been delayed. It's finally going to be released, we think, at the end of this week. Nevertheless, we're not going to get to a special session for another month plus. David Ralston thinks it could be even later than that. To what extent Mm -hmm. does Kemp really need to have this taken up in a special session, and to what extent is it important to him to pressure people like Ralston to want to add crime to the uh, call? I'm I'm not quite, how much does he lose by not taking it up until the regular session in January?
2: Yeah, he doesn't, (laughs) frankly, right, because the regular (laughs) session is right around the corner. Um, uh, you know, I, I think I think it's 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 a way for him to say this is an urgent problem and that we need to take it up as a state immediately. And so there's a, a sense of urgency to it and certainly in a special session things move could move quicker than they will do during a regular 40-day session that will end in, let's say, late March, early April, God willing. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> there, there's that. But, um, and, and that's why there's you're hearing pushback from, from legislative leaders, which is, look, we've got enough on our, our plates just to do redistricting. That's going to be a nightmare in itself, redrawing the political maps for the next decade. Why add on other things? And again, too, that crime isn't the only thing um, that, that lawmakers are pushing. There's There's all sorts of Asks um, about about coronavirus restrictions and regulations uh, as well, whether they be loosening or, or stiffening them. So uh, I I I guess lawmakers will take this up in January rather than rather than October November.
1: Do you well? Let me ask you then to follow up on what you just said. Do you expect that? The governor is going to uh, he'll probably be pressured by people like Burt Jones and, and and maybe others who are running for office to take up some kind of covid uh, package during the special session. But is he really likely to want to do that? That strikes me. I mean, the governor's tried to be sort of somehow craft, as we've said already, something of a middle road in all this.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great term for it a middle road, because he's I, and I don't think he'll take up. Um, and I haven't gotten an affirmative on this, but I do not think he'll take up a sweeping ban on mandate or something like that because it would go against everything he's been saying, um, especially in recent times. Which is, I mean, just just a few days ago, uh, I asked him about school uh, mask requirements, and he said school administrators have been dealing with this ably for the last 16 months. So why tell them what to do now? So it's really hard for me to see him um, taking a step like Bert Jones has asked him to do or others or or other related steps when he's been talking about uh, allowing local control. Um, Even when it comes to Savannah, Atlanta mask mandates, um, he's he's ended the authority he had to try to stop those. And he's he's criticized those mandates, but he also hasn't taken any action um, to try to prevent them.
1: Okay. Um, well, we're going to watch and see uh, when we're going to get that call from the governor for the special session, because he will have to list what issues he wants to take up. Audrey, the AJC uh, published an interesting story, Mark Nisi, who follows election issues for the newspaper yesterday about Herschel Walker's wife. They live in Texas. We know that. We've heard that over and over again as we discuss whether Herschel Walker is actually going to run for the US Senate here or not. Uh, They live in Texas. They maintain a separate residence here in Georgia. And Mark Nisi uncovered the fact that Herschel's wife voted in the Georgia presidential election. And there are some questions as to whether her vote here, whether she voted legally here. Uh, she has a driver's license in Georgia. We know that. Um, but is she a Texas resident or a Georgia resident? And what does that mean in terms of Herschel Walker, who has repeatedly talked about the fake election and people who cheated? Audrey?
0: Well, it means that irony is still alive and well. And I think, um, you know, the, 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 the thing that, that I have seen is that, um, you know, uh, their homestead exemption is taken in in Texas, and that usually is for your residential domicile. So, you know, yeah. on on one hand, if you're looking at that as a as a, a, a fact, then she resides in Texas and probably should have voted in Texas. So, but that will be left up to the, I guess, the Secretary of State's office to decide whether they are going to pursue investigating that. But again, in the overall scheme of things, that story will probably you know, Die Down and Herschel Walker, we still don't know if he's running or not. And we have seen a recent poll where he leads in terms of um, the, the, the 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 polls and the potential support among those that might be entering the race. So it's just, again, here's the uncertainty like COVID. We have uncertainty in this race and it's the Herschel Walker effect. We don't know what's really going to happen. But um, again, It's ironic, but it probably will not play a large role in whatever happens.
1: Yeah, we'll watch how it plays out. Kurt, uh, Lucy McBath went through the same kind of issue when her husband, who has a residency in Tennessee, he was questioned for uh, voting in Georgia. It certainly didn't prevent her from being elected. Uh, But it it is ironic, at the very least, as Audrey says, Kurt.
4: Yeah, it is. And I, I suspect, I suspect the, the closer we get to the race, and if he decides to enter into the race, I don't think this will be the only uh, type of issue. Maybe I'm, I'm going out on a limb here and making some predictions, but I don't think this is the only issue that may uh, dust up some discussion about his uh, um, um, fitfulness, if that's a word for, for the Senate, <laughs> opposed. <or> <laughs>
1: Uh, well, uh, uh, let's turn to our expert on whether Herschel Walker is going to run for the U.S. Senate or not, Greg Bluestein, who keeps insisting it's absolutely going to happen. <laughs> Greg, I wouldn't if, if Herschel. It's,
2: it's likely. I, I, it still seems likely. I apologize. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, the challenge in all Go this, ahead. still, and, and I mentioned this last week, too, is we, we just, there's no great link. There's no, right now at least, there's no, there's no operative, there's no campaign apparatus that we know of. He's um, calling the shots, which is why these stories keep on coming out that, that, are, that seem so damaging without really um, much pushback from his camp. Although in, in, in the AJC's case, we actually talked to his wife multiple times who con- confirmed indeed that she 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 voted from Texas. Um, but, you know, broad, broadly speaking, there is no campaign political apparatus. And so one story after another keeps on coming out. And with rel- relatively no response from Herschel Walker, but I've said this before: these negative stories, although you know some are damaging, some are some are less so. Either way, though, is not going to uh, impact his final decision, in my view. <clears throat> I mean, you know, he he's going to do what many Republicans do when they're faced with, with with tough stories and just call it fake news <laughs> when he comes out, right? Um, so if if he gets in the race. Um, he's got other things he's, he's factoring in, I think, private business discussions, things like that. But with Donald Trump's support, um, his supporters feel like that's enough um, to get him over the finish line in the Republican primary, at least. We'll see.
1: Uh, yeah, Rene, I think we should point out that if Herschel Walker's reading that PPP poll, the public policy polling poll that came out this week, that I talked about him a few minutes ago. It may give him good reason to want to jump into this race. He's viewed favorably – uh, by a far greater number of people than uh, he is group viewed unfavorably. And in a direct matchup with uh, uh, Raphael Warnock, uh, he's in a basically a statistical tie with Warnock, although you could say the same is true about Raphael Warnock and Kelly Loeffler uh, to an extent, at least within the margin of error. Uh, so we're going to have to see... Uh, Rene, whether or not Herschel Walker does jump into this race, it'll certainly make life for us who cover politics interesting.
3: Yeah, the whole, the whole thing is just so wacky and entertaining, isn't it? I mean, it feels like an old-school <laughs> WWE battle royal. I kind of have to expect <laughs> Andre the Giant goat to enter the GOP <laughs> primary race, right? I, 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 I do think that, look, if it's true that his wife broke the rules, it's just another question mark on Herschel's record, right? And I think the real question here is, 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 is he has he been vetted enough to effectively push into the field to to combat a very strong candidate in Warnock? I, I don't I don't think so. Um, but it will like imagine that debate. I'm I'm going to tune in. You know.
1: All right. Renee Alegria gets the last word in this segment of the show. We've got more to talk about in Political Rewind, and we'll be back in just a moment. Quick program note before we continue with the panel. We're going to uh, present another special edition of our show tomorrow with a powerhouse lineup that I'm really looking forward to talking with. We're going to talk about gun violence. Um, we've already said on this show that uh, gun violence is something the politicians on both sides of the aisle use to their advantage as a political weapon. But what if we treated gun violence as a public health issue where we used data and research to try to get to the bottom of why guns proliferate and why they're used in so many uh, crimes across the state of Georgia. And our lineup for this show includes Dr. David Satcher, who, of course, is the former director of the Centers for Disease Control. And, in addition, was Bill Clinton, Surgeon General of the United States. Dr. Mark Rosenberg, who was the former head of injury prevention and control for CDC, and actually was fired because he insisted on doing gun violence research way back uh, at the turn of the 21st century. Uh, And um, Catherine Lawler, who works with an organization that is dedicated to improving health outcomes across the state and uh, Greg Bluestein's colleague Leroy Chapman, the managing editor of the AJC, will be with us to help facilitate that conversation. Um, all right, that's tomorrow on Political Rewind. Uh, Greg Bluestein, um, we have learned uh, that um, we're going to get um, testimony today from B.J. Pack, the former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia, who resigned abruptly. While Trump was challenging him to uh, work with him on uh, uh, calling Georgia's presidential election fraudulent, he is now going to testify before Senator Dick Durbin's uh, panel investigating uh, the ways in which the Trump administration and Trump and his allies tried to interfere with the election. And he's doing that later today. It's going to be fascinating to learn what we can about what uh, PAC has to say, Greg.
2: Yeah, man, I would love to be in that closed door hearing because I've been trying to get <laughs> DJ DJ Pack to talk for a long time to the AJC. Uh, he's a former Republican state lawmaker who goes way back, and he was looked at as a potential attorney general candidate. Now he's in private practice, but yeah, he he abruptly resigned right before the runoff, um, right right before mm-hmm. the January fifth runoff, uh, Senate runoff this year, um, and right after the tape came out of of President Trump trying to uh, force. Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, to overturn the election results. And in that tape, um, he's re- he apparently is referring to B.J. Pack as a never-Trumper. Um, and so, you know, we can reasonably believe that something uh, along those lines, either it was the tape or just the the, the specter of, of pressure being put on the Justice Department to investigate these false claims of widespread election fraud, um, compelled B.J. to... take action but we also all we've really seen from uh, publicly from from mr pack has been his resignation letter and some emails sent back and forth between justice department officials so he is yet to speak publicly about it and i can't wait to hear what what happens from that hearing
1: um, uh, Audrey, we are learning more and more about uh, just the extent to which the uh, Trump uh, folks, the allies, and the Trump, uh, pre- and President Trump himself went to try to undermine election results. Um, here in Georgia, we know that he persuaded the head of the Department of Justice's civil division uh, to write a letter uh, which uh, eventually was not sent. DOJ had the good sense to reject it, but the letter uh, urged the Georgia General Assembly to take up, have it to call for a special session of the legislature to overturn the results of the general election to take that for themselves. There, they would have the power to determine who the electors for the state would be. Uh, The General Assembly. Audrey doesn't have the power to call a session, only the governor can. And because Governor Kemp wouldn't do it, uh, there was an effort to try to get legislators to. Thank goodness DOJ said no.
0: No, and I will tell you, I mean, thank goodness for James Madison um, and this notion of creating institutions and filling them Mm. with people who could check other people's ambitions. Because, you know, I will just tell you as a political scientist who's studied this for over 20 years, it has been so disheartening to see this process. And as more and more information comes out, I think the most disheartening thing was how close, how close we actually came to, you know, you know, seeing some of this, you know, gruesome assault on democracy come into being. And I, I hope a lot of people will at some point wake up and and recognize that they are not being served by buying into, you know, this, you know, fantasy because it is destructive. I,
3: you know, I, I think um, I think that we're going to see so much come out of what happened in the, that 72 hours with the election and the weeks running up to it, you know, historians, political scientists, history will examine those those weeks by the hour, by the minute. It's, and, and it's not going to be pretty. And I, 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 I agree that it's going to be something that I hope does open people's eyes to just how how fragile our system can be if the wrong people are elected to office.
4: And, you know, you, you know, it, this forces me to come back to a question that I've been asking, and I, I kind of ask it rhetorically, but it's something that I'm really, really wondering, which is what is the end game? Where do we believe this is heading, if particularly those who are very comfortable in the current path and the trajectory in the uh, eroding of these democratic institutions and norms? And, and, and I agree, it's a very, very fragile system uh that we have in the, in American politics. And uh I I I'm so I'm I, I'm am going to join with the gang. I'm interested in seeing I'm I'm interested in seeing the connections between uh the Raffensperger uh uh, uh pressure campaign to the PAC pressure campaign to uh uh the broader discussion um uh, about the administration's uh feeding of the uh of January six uh uh coup d'etat I'm gonna call it. Uh and I wanna see how these all connect But what I really wanna see going back to the question of where this is headed i'm going to be really concerned if there is not any if there if there isn't any accountability to be held for the violation of these federal uh laws and and and, and election laws and what have you
1: all right. Well, we're going to watch this unfold. And uh, we know that at least some of what B.J. Pack tells the uh, Durban committee will, in fact, leak out. Um, Greg, we're, we don't have a lot of time, but we'll have more time to talk about this in the weeks before the redistricting session begins and while it's underway. But I, I at least want to mention it briefly. Um, GPB News uh, t- took a deep look with the Georgia News Lab at uh, the public comments that people have been making during the public hearings, mm-hmm. the reapportionment committees have had uh, across the state as they prepare for the uh, special session. And it's not surprising that uh, the, the largest number of people said fairness in the process. It was important public input and transparency Uh, mattered to people who gave testimony. But I thought one of the most interesting things that came out of that was people in smaller communities who said they are urging legislators not to divide their cities, their towns up into various districts because they already have little enough leverage as it is. But when they're divided into several districts, it really dilutes their power. And that's an issue that will be worth talking about further. But give us your first thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, it really is an issue. We see it time and again. I mean, Athens, um, you know, small towns all over South Georgia, college campuses are split. Um, neighborhoods can be split, and so that's a recurring theme we see, um, especially when it comes to dividing, you know, sort of democratic strongholds, which is why Athens, um, in particular, has been split in terms of legislative districts. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's a major issue, and. Um, And it does go against, you know, you mentioned how the number one issue is the principle of fairness, but it also goes against that, too, which is, you know, keeping communities intact for the purposes of of, of voicing their political opinions.
1: All right, well, we will be interested in following this as uh, reapportionment begins in the state of Georgia later in the fall. Uh, This week we'll look for the uh, U.S. Census data to be released. By the way, we're learning that for the first time it is likely that uh, white Uh, Americans have lost population for the first time in the history of the census and the only growth in population is in minority communities We'll talk about that at some point on political rewind as well. Uh, That's it. For our show today, Kurt Young, Renee Alegria, Audrey Haynes, Greg Bluestein, thank you so much for being with us for an interesting conversation. We're back again tomorrow with our special edition on guns and whether we should be treating them as a public health issue, featuring the former Surgeon General and Director of CDC, uh, David Satcher, Mark Rosenberg, Kath Laudler, and uh, Leroy Chapman. So I'll see you again then, but in the meantime, take care stay healthy. Please, yes, wear your mask when you're indoors. This Delta variant is much too dangerous to not pay attention to safeguards. And finally, tell your friends, maybe it's time to think about getting vaccinated. See you all tomorrow.